So here's the paradox. If you are an Ethiopian spy today, you are very likely to have been trained by the Americans to use software produced in Europe and to harvest data in the Chinese network. So these complexities what I wanted to bring to the fore. Hello and welcome to the African Tech Roundup episode 132. This is where we round up the most important tech, digital and innovation highlights from across the African continent. My name is Andy Lemasugu. Glad you could join us. And this episode is brought to you in association with our friends at Business Live uh, and, of course, the team at Multimedia Live. Thanks to them, the African Tech Roundup podcast is now available on Business Live and wherever you stream Multimedia Live podcasts. So we're really, really grateful for that. And listen, if you're into wrapping your mind around the growing relationship between Africa and China... Boy, are you in for a treat today because we're dedicating this entire episode of the show to understanding or at least starting to better appreciate how various key markets in Africa and the continent at large are responding to or even in some cases actively encouraging Chinese commercial participation within the tech and innovation sector. But before we get to all that, please allow me to welcome back to the show a man who is somewhat of an oracle because when he joined me on our last flagship episode, he declared that he hoped that it would be the first of many. I'm speaking of none other than Osaruman Osamui joining us via Skype from Abuja. How are you doing, man? How are you doing, Andela? I'm all right. Good, good. Uh, I'm doing really, really well. I believe it's your mum's uh, birthday out there. 60th birthday. Oh, my word. I hope you're making her feel special. Uh, in fact, I am. You better be that boy. You better be that boy. <laughs> Please give her our best. And uh, listen, people are telling me that one, the tenor of your voice is a thing of beauty. This is what I'm hearing from the streets. Inter and, interesting. Uh, yes, the village is speaking. Uh, uh, secondly, they also say your mind is a wonder. Your mind is a wonder, brother. So uh, believe me, I am not alone in admiring your talent for nuanced analysis and it's a pleasure to have you back uh thank you so much for joining us man it's a pleasure thank you for your kind words absolutely now joining us via skype from the university of the witwatersrand aka wits university where the man's launching a book well we have an extra special guest who knows a thing or two about the evolving africa china relationship particularly as it pertains to matters of tech and innovation. Welcome to you, Eugenio Galliadone. Thank you, Ndile. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast. As you know, I've been a heavy listener, and so it's great to be on it. Uh, thanks for being a member of The Village, even before you jumped on the mic. Um, listen, Eugenio teaches media and communication at the University of the Witwatersrand at Wits University in South Africa. He is uh, also an associate research fellow in new media and human rights in the program in comparative media law and policy at the University of Oxford. And um, as I alluded to earlier, he's also the author of a book that's just been published and one that uh, also Ruman and myself have only just started to read. It's called China, Africa, and the Future of the Internet. Good, strong title. It's published by Z Books. Congrats on the book, Eugenio. You are currently in the throes of launching the book, taking it to the people. Sounds good? Yeah, it was fantastic. It was the first time that I signed a book. I was a bit embarrassed. Uh, and, uh, but it was such a nice crowd of people. Uh, and uh, I couldn't imagine a better, better bunch uh, for my first experience uh, with a pen on my own book. Um, Congratulations, Eugenio. 
Thank you. Thank you. Well, also remember, we're observing the transition from uh, man of the people to celebrity right before our eyes. <laughs> yeah, yes, we are. I'm, I'm yet to sign my first autograph. So, Eugenio, you have <laughs> me too. You, ha- you have that on 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 me. Perhaps also, remember, you had the pleasure, not not me. Uh, uh, I haven't. Not yet. Oh but, man. But soon. All right. So thank you for bringing those celebrity vibes to the show. Eugenio. <laughs> you launched the book at an investigative journalism conference. Is that right? Yeah, it was a great conference. It was not just in China, Africa and uh, journalists from across the continent uh, trying to think the way through into the very complicated future of investigative journalists on the continent. Very cool people here. Are you finding people willing to engage with uh, some of the complex uh, notions that you, you, you highlight in your book? The thing that I noticed is that people do appreciate the complexity. It's not the one-way story. There is a lot of layers when we talk about Africa and China and we take it uh, to the global level and engage with other actors. Uh, but uh, there is a challenge. So where is the space to, to tell this kind of complexity? If you are a journalist, uh, you don't have uh, you know 200 pages to explain what the relationship is or you don't have 10 years to do, to do work. Uh, but I think there are some lessons that can be learned and also used uh, into this space. Uh, and uh, it was quite rewarding also receiving some uh, emails from people, for example, in the U.S. saying, well, we were using kind of a simplistic narrative, but uh, going through the book uh, and, you know, I'm not the only one who has been writing about these things uh, and start appreciating that uh, things are much more complicated. We usually write. Oh, we love to hear that on the show because, of course, we go by oversimplification is the enemy. And also, Ruman and I are only a short way into the book, but already it sparked some curiosities that should make for... A very lively conversation indeed. So, you know, in the acknowledgement section of the book, you share an anecdote of how being lost in a building uh, in Ethiopia after a high-profile interview led to an interesting discovery. Perhaps by way of introducing yourself a little further and um, letting us into how you've become a, you know, what I consider a leading thinker in the Africa-China tech space. Tell us who you were meeting and what you happened upon. Well, that was like more than 10 years ago. It was 2008. I was working on a previous book. The book was looking at the role of media in nation building in Ethiopia. Very interesting, very complex country. And uh, I was very lucky. I was really happy because I had the chance to meet uh, the CEO of what at the time was Ethiopian Telecommunication Corporation. It was a great meeting. It went well beyond what I, uh, what I was expecting. Uh, it was just, I think we spoke for two hours. Uh, and uh, I was happy when we were done. I was exhausted. Uh, and uh, as you do when you meet people who are important, you I'm just clear my agenda. And then I just start wandering uh, on, on the top floor of the building. Uh, a few doors were open and I sort of, uh, you know, was uh, picking in and trying not to be too inquisitive. Uh, and what I noticed is that in the room, uh, in uh, there were not uh, Ethiopian computer scientists or uh, engineers. Uh, most of the rooms uh, were staffed with Chinese. And I thought, well, there is, I'm not a journalist, but there is a very interesting story to tell. Hmm. A floor full of Chinese at the top of what was then and perhaps re- remains what the largest telco in, in Ethiopia. Yeah. The, the only telco in Ethiopia. Okay. Indeed, yes. Thanks, Sir Ruman, for reminding me. It, it's e- effectively a monopoly. Uh, to have a, fo- a floor full of um, people from the Far East working away at something says at least something about the way things would go in in the years subsequent to that occurrence. So we're going to dive into what some of those things might be and certainly some of what those things are based on the research you've been doing, uh, Eugenio. But before we launch into the topic of the day, I thought we might start light. Uh, I'll start by asking both of you, and I'll factor in too, 
what your favorite Chinese thing of the moment is right now. Your favorite Chinese thing. Definitely, I have a straight answer on that one. And uh, my very favorite Chinese things right now is the Wandering Heart. Is a blockbuster, very heavily f- funded uh, science fiction Chinese movie based on a very popular novel by Liu Zixin. And uh, if you haven't watched it, it's, it's really worth. You know, it's both like uh, you know Armageddon type of uh, type of style, uh, but in Chinese flavors. And uh, you're both gonna get into it, but also laugh about it. So if you haven't watched it before, that's definitely my favorite one. The Wandering Hurt, fantastic. And we're gonna share links to that uh, so people can check it out as well. What are you into right now, Suraman? Um, my favorite Chinese thing at the moment, I think, is WeChat. Um, because the world has suddenly gotten obsessed with super apps and I have been trying to understand them and WeChat has been a useful tool for trying to understand the broader trend. The, the super app trend is definitely something you've written a lot about. So I'm, I'm kind of not surprised, but are you an active user of the app? Uh, I haven't been to China yet, uh, so I, there's not too much use. So all, all my use is for taking screen, screenshots, studying its architecture, etc. Nothing too too heavy. Right, I, have right. no, I have no friends who use WeChat, so I can't text anybody on there. Um, but it's useful to play around with it. <laughs> My favorite thing is um, a not-so-Chinese thing. It's actually the first uh, full-length documentary that Os- um, I almost said Osama bin Laden, Obama, uh, Barack Obama, and his wife, <laughs> Michelle. Out. The right-wing people are going to build it <laughs> no, and spin it out on the net. No, no, Barack Obama and his wife Michelle uh, have uh, executive produced a, a a documentary called American Factory, which is a fascinating look at uh, a former GM plant that uh, was taken over by a Chinese company. It's available on Netflix. Fascinating, fascinating beyond at least to someone like me who's just you know I'm a people observer and and watching you know Americans deal with the reality of not keeping up with the world and then watching sort of Chinese foreign interests come in and essentially hire them to to work for them. It was just a fascinating look and perhaps even a, a, a metaphor for what's going on elsewhere in the world, even right here on the continent. As a close second to that would be my Android phone, the Pocophone by Xiaomi. It's my first Android device since um, saying goodbye to the iOS standard. And I have to say, it's easily the best phone I've ever owned, except for the... The iPhone? No. (laughs) (laughs) iPhones included, believe it or not. To be fair, I've never owned a high-end iPhone. So I've never had like the best possible experience iPhone can deliver. So I've I've never sort of actively experienced that on a day-to-day. But um, my only thing is something I've said on the show before. There has been a ridiculous erosion in my personal data privacy since reverting back to Android. That's really, really unfortunate. Except for that, I'm really, really happy with the phone. The price point was amazing. Day-to-day, the utility is incredible. So yeah, Shout out to you, Xiaomi, the Apple of China. I think the Apple of China is Apple. Uh, oh, shots fired. <laughs> <laughs> I have to agree with you. Perhaps in many respects, uh, not least brand recognition and, and brand equity, Apple is still Apple, yeah? Mm-hmm. All right, then, gents, let's jump into the topic of the day. You know, I just want to start by saying this will not be an exhaustive summary of all you need to know, uh, you know, as pertains to the African continent corporately or certain markets uh, specifically and their relationship with China uh, vis-a-vis sort of tech and innovation. That's impossible. It's in part why in the coming months we've decided to partner with the uh, China Africa project on 
uh, a regular podcast offering that will study that specific topic. And, and so, I mean, that's just an admission of how long it'll take and just how nuanced the discussion it'll be. But I do think what Eugenio, you bring to the table is a great tablecloth on which we can put everything else and, and put everything else in proper context. I think the research you've done, the people you've had the privilege of rubbing shoulders with in China and on the continent will provide uh, quite a bit of insight for us as we try and wrap our minds around what indeed the deal is in terms of Africa, China and, and China, Africa. And in fact, that's where I want us to start. If we think about Africa corporately for a second, in which direction is this conversation around tech and innovation involvement in Africa and in China weighted? Is it weighted on the on the China side or is it weighted on the Africa side? Do we have an Africa-China dynamic or a China-Africa dynamic? Well, that's a very good question. And, uh, and I think it really depends on where we pitch our analysis. So a lot of the narrative uh, coming, uh, well, I would say mostly from the global north, uh, but also in some cases in Africa sort of frames the, the relationship as a China-Africa rather than Africa-China. But uh, when I started doing my research, uh, I also wanted to uh, respond with empirical evidence. I think the main uh, uh, value added of the book is that, that I build it based on like principled arguments or like fancy rankings coming out from Freedom House or the like. Uh, I sat down and spoke with uh, the many people involved in this kind of space, uh, talking about uh, African computer scientists and engineers uh, and politicians and Chinese uh, and uh, and uh, also people from all over uh, all over the world uh, that happen to be working on the continent. And uh, I wanted also to respond to some of the claims that, uh, well, China, when it comes to the media, has a pretty authoritarian grip of what can be said uh, or what can't be said. And uh, and the kind of like sloppy and easy uh, argument and narrative that was being put forward is more engagement of China in Africa into the te telecommunication space uh, is going to lead to more authoritarianism. So I said, okay, let's take some of these, even if I disagree with this, uh, this is view, let's take some of them at face value. So I, I, I selected uh, two countries uh, that can be flagged as authoritarian or semi-authoritarian. One uh, is Ethiopia, the other one is Rwanda. And the other two countries are uh, recognized as more open and democratic are Kenya and Ghana. So the question is, uh, more engagement with China, uh, with China will uh, move all these countries to more authoritarianism? Or does China like to play and engage more with uh, uh, other authoritarian regimes or not? What did you find? And the, the, I found a lot of diversity. You know, China doesn't have a template for the continent, uh, definitely when it comes to uh, information and telecommunication. So let's get the case for Ethiopia. And uh, um, as we just said, uh, Ethiopia still has uh, a monopoly over telecommunication. And, but it has a very strong commitment uh, towards expanding access. So this project, this very stubborn project of maintaining monopoly and expanding access would have been impossible without a large lender like China. So China gave to Ethiopia over 10 years the largest loan in the history of telecommunication in Africa, more than $3 billion. And with these, uh, 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 Ethio Telecom first uh, and uh, uh, it was called ETC first and then Ethio Telecom managed to achieve some level of this project. But then we moved to Ghana and Kenya where the telecommunication had, liberal, had been liberalized very early on and the Chinese uh, ZTE and Huawei, the two big players, uh, came as kind of late into the game and so they just fit into the system that they found in these countries. And uh, with the Safaricom, with the MTN, with the Vodacom, and they became one of the many players into this space. 
but we can't really see the effect that was uh, uh, that was uh, highlighted and expected uh, at the very beginning of this kind of engagement. So the answer is uh, a lot of diversity. This idea of China as as water or as something that is um, formless and that uh, conforms to whatever local conditions it finds is compelling to me. But I'm struggling to juxtapose this against an, a different view of China, um, one which which history has certainly borne out, uh, which does things in its own long-term interests, which takes a much longer time horizon than anybody else uh, and tries to move chess pieces to cause its interest to get advanced. Um, one example uh, that comes to mind is um, the French newspaper Le Monde, which reported that um, while the Chinese gifted the AU building to, to the African Union, uh, they also inserted a backdoor that allowed it to transfer data, um, effectively bugging the place. Like th- that, it seems to me like China primarily acts in China's interests. Um, so how do you square that idea against this one that, that you just articulated? No, you're very right. And, uh, and the interesting thing that I noticed, and I also captured capturing the book is uh, when I was speaking with, uh, let's say, a minister of telecommunication or uh, uh, someone's trying to, to de- develop his own startup in, in Kenya and so forth, uh, there was uh, a kind of clear and complex understanding of what China was doing at that particular point in time. But what I also saw is there was uh, this kind of curiosity about uh, Oh, is there a long-term plan? Is there a kind of a master plan that we can't really see, but someone in China is sort of devising? And uh, I want to give you an example. Again, going back to the idea that more Chinese engagement means more authoritarianism. We did see in the past few years, and you guys have been talking about it as well, uh, a kind of more authoritarian uh, approach by governments towards the Internet. Before shutting down, the Internet was seen as a kind of like impossibility, and now it's becoming relatively common. Let's think about Cameroon, Ethiopia itself, and so forth. And uh, uh, nobody can really say that uh, these kind of uh, measures uh, are motivated by trying to follow China into their own idea of the internet. Uh, but when uh, heads of state, uh, the late Mela Zenawi or uh, Yuveri Museveni or Paul Bia are going on record, they say, well, we're going to do it because, uh, you know, we don't like the stabilization. And they very much tie into the, this is a US-led idea of uh, we need to securitize this space. And uh, it builds on the anti-terrorism after 9-11 and so many other things. So the paradox is uh, when the internet is being shut down, the rhetoric that is being used in the public uh, is the one coming from uh, the United States uh, first and foremost, uh, but a large coalition of countries. Uh, But then when things are done in practice, it might be done uh, through Chinese means. So we kind of have this unholy alliance uh, between discourses coming from one part of the world uh, and technology coming from another one. Why does China get singled out when it seems pretty obvious to me that any quote-unquote global superpower at the moment is keen on shaping the world into its own image, whether we're talking the US, the global north in general, Europe certainly, Russia, and even other you know smaller players like Japan. Everyone's doing stuff either directly, geopolitically, or by proxy through commercial means. My guess would be that um, it's because lots of the, the bits of media that we consume, lots of the culture that we consume and reproduce is primarily Western or primarily from the U.S. And so um, we're, the version of history or the version of uh, or our picture about what the world looks like today is very informed by uh, America's perspective. I, I personally think it's, it's unfortunate that that's the case. 
um, because this world is is much more complex than these simple narratives. Um, but but that is what that's my sense for what's happening. I also think it's kind of naive to assume that uh, China or anybody really could apply a continental template to our continent and, and how to deal with it. I mean, after all, like, would that be a Nigeria-shaped template? Would that be a South Africa-shaped template, mm. a Zimbabwe-shaped template? Who in their right mind would approach the African continent like that? But that's the simplified narrative out there. So-and-so is winning in the, in the race for Africa, and it's, it's really is kind, <laughs> kind of weird. Um, uh, yes, the, the, the lapse in accent, uh, not intended there, folks. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> now there's a photograph that went viral, um, some months back, an image of, I think it was a, a delegation of Zimbabwean politicians. It could have been some other African country, but I think it was Zimbabwean, uh, politicians sitting across the table from Asian counterparts. Could have been China, could have been Japan. I can't quite remember, but it's quite clearly, uh, Africa meets the East a situation. And in front of the Asian delegation on the desk in front of them, on the table in front of them, is all these notes and, you know, laptops and tablets. And in front of the African delegation is precious nothing. Uh, <laughs> folded hands, <laughs> just wonderfully tidy in front of them. And um, as a metaphor for how a lot of people perceive the Africa-China relationship or the Africa-East relationship, but Africa-China specifically for this, for the purpose of this discussion, to what extent does that picture reflect reality, Eugenio? Well, I would like to add uh, another actor to this picture, especially when we talk about uh, the internet, we talk about uh, digital media and uh, and related stuff. Uh, so for the book, I also had the chance to interview a number of African computer scientists and uh, activists uh, and uh, people who have been part uh, for a very, very long time uh, of these uh, global gathering uh, on internet governance, where all kind of um, different uh, diplomats and tech people meet and trying to define what is the present and the future of the internet. And this space had been historically dominated for obvious reason by the United States because of the, you know, what the internet is uh, and uh, where it comes from. And it was really interesting to hear one of these uh, activists and civil society member saying that uh, it had become almost uh, embarrassing to see which kind of delegation the United States uh, had been sending in the past few years to this gathering. And he was so impressed by the quality of uh, the delegation sent by China, both a very great mix of uh, the best diplomat and the best tech people. So it was also like referring to the African delegation and trying to make up their minds. So definitely they weren't sleeping. Definitely they had their laptops open or more and so forth. But uh, China is definitely stepping up the game uh, and also with the, you know, what used to be the big power. So when it comes to the internet, uh, they're really putting a lot of efforts into this space. Uh, and it's definitely something to watch. Do you think that dynamic that Eugenio just unpacked is indicative of essentially the centers of power or the centers of influence around those matters filtering much higher up to like offices of the presidencies or, or things of that nature? Yes, that definitely resonates with me. I want to bring up what's, to me, clearly a, a hint at your personal bias as an academic, as a human being. We obviously all lean into certain sort of doctrines or ideas about ourselves and the world and how it should be. My sense is that, you know, even in your framing of the idea of authoritarianism and democracy, you probably walked into the writing of this book and into your research with uh, ideas of how you'd like to see things turn out. 
with the benefit of hindsight and the perspective you've gained through putting this book together and all the people you've spoken to, what would you say is your, your standpoint ideologically on what should be? Well, I think I have a few and, uh, and I think they are becoming more clear as things, as things develop. So let me start with the beginning. You know, obviously when you call things authoritarian democratic, uh, democratic, you are biased. But uh, my attempt was, uh, to speak to everyone, also to speak to the critics uh, that take this kind of definition for granted. So when you have to just engage with an adversary, you can't just do it uh, setting a completely different rule book. Uh, you have to accept that rule book. So that's where, where I was starting. And uh, I wanted to bring empirical evidence to the fore. So I was sort of like tired of uh, logics based not on having been in particular places, but just expecting what China would do, given the idea that we have about China as well as Africa. And uh, so some people, maybe at the beginning of my book, you know, I'm Italian. I live in in South Africa. I used to live in the UK. I don't know where I, you know, where my affiliation lies right now. I'm quite confused myself. But uh, some people would say, well, you're very much defending China's position. And probably I was uh, doing a bit of this because I felt that there was uh, such uh, uh, a strong fire on China at the time. It was just just clouding uh, our understanding and, and the ability to really grasp what was going on. Let me just give you an example. You know, when uh, we briefly discussed it before, when it comes to China, the idea is, you know, the surveillance apparatus that has been built by the Chinese government in China is so sophisticated uh, and more China in Ethiopia or in Kenya or in Ghana and you can add to the list uh, will mean greater surveillance. But if we focus on Ethiopia, the picture is so much more complicated than that. Because of the Snowden revelation, now we know that the National Security Agency, the U.S. National Security Agency, set up a project in Ethiopia called the Lions Pride already back in 2002. And this project was aimed at training Ethiopian spies uh, uh, to spy online uh, what the Ethiopians were doing, but also like in the very hot Horn of Africa region. And uh, because of great work that is done by colleagues in Canada, the Citizen Lab, uh, we know that uh, the Ethiopian government has been buying uh, software in Europe. Uh, one company is Gamma Technology, the other one is the Italian, my own guys, uh, uh, hacking team, uh, to actually get into diaspora politicians into the their computers. And we discussed uh, how China, ZDE and Huawei have been instrumental in expanding uh, access to telecommunication in, in Ethiopia. So here's the paradox. If you are an Ethiopian spy today, you are very likely to have been trained by the Americans uh, to use software produced in Europe uh, and to harvest data on a Chinese network. So these complexities, wow. what I want to bring to the fore and saying, are we concerned about pointing fingers? In that case, China is a very easy target. Uh, or what we're interested in is understanding what is a bearable level of surveillance uh, and what can we say it's fine because of our national security and what it's not fine. And if we ask this question, the players uh, is, are not just China. They are so many more. And this hypocrisy has to be unpacked. And so, Ruben, I was just thinking, um, there's something about the, the, the odd mix or the uneasy mix of capitalism and democracy that's embodied in companies like Google and Facebook and uh, Amazon that I think is not as easy a sell on the African continent in many places as it might have been perhaps, you know, 10 years ago. Why do you think that is? I think that is because 
people don't care about democracy or capitalism or or any specific ideology. Um, they care about them to the extent that they are vehicles for prosperity. Um, and so, you know, as as you will see in a number of African countries today, we've uh, the countries have had democracy foisted upon them. Um, whereas in other more developed countries, there had a bit more time. Um, you'll find that the results have not quite been the same. Um, and so, you know, from the perspective of an individual person in, in one African country, you know, you're telling him about quote unquote freedom. Uh, we're talking about capitalism as a vehicle for prosperity. If they haven't seen that to be true, um, then I, obviously that's not going to resonate very strongly with them. Um, also, you know, thinking about or, or speaking about capitalism specifically, while I'm very, very, I'm very much pro-capitalist, um, there's also a strong understanding, uh, or, or I, or I have a bias, um, um, in the other direction as well, given that I believe that, um, a healthy mix of both a, more capitalist, more individualistic society, um, as well as a more Marxist society is probably a, a good sweet spot. I don't think any one of them is uh, correct. I'm 41 now, and, and I, I was one of those people who got the internet into his own house. And meaning like, uh, you know, I bought a package and I connected the thing, uh, my computer, and it was so excited to hear this crackling noise of the modem and being in the, that space. And, and the internet at the time, we're talking late 1990s, was this just wonderful cyberspace where we could be whatever we wanted and we could just uh, innovate uh, without, uh, with just uh, the, the, the sky is our ceiling. And, uh, and what I'm seeing today, you, you referred earlier to the, the big corporate giants. Huh? You know, on the one hand, we have China that is supporting the state. On the other hand, we have like the Facebook, the Google and the like uh, that are like uh, making a lot of values in any country where they work, but the values doesn't stay in the country. The, the, the value gets siphoned away and, uh, and taken elsewhere. So my bias is very much, I really like that kind of vision. I really like that kind of imagery of the, of a free open internet. And for a while, in order to uh, apply that idea, I had to side with uh, the United States. Now we are in a position that is both terrifying, but also really empowering if we look at it the other way, is that like, there are no good guys anymore. You know, China is doing what it's doing and uh, Facebook is doing what it's doing. And we know in the past couple of years and uh, we can add to the list. Uh, and where is this idea of the internet? Where is it? There's still a space for the little guys or people like us to sort of shape something radically new. And this is what I think could be a new battle. And uh, there's problem of capacity. There is problem of who is going to do that bit. Uh, but at least it would be great if we can start talking about it. I mean, also, Ruman, this sounds to me like the formation of a, of a sort of neo-third world uh, psyche. Um, and I obviously, you know, I say that carefully because I, I don't mean this in ideological terms. I, I mean, perhaps we underplay the agency of African countries to pick and choose policy and partnerships in a way that, you know, is unprecedented. As, as Eugenie was speaking just now, I was just thinking about, um, some research that I did into the transportation industry, um, in the past year, um, how many African governments, um, after the, the, the countries gained independence, tried to exert control over the transportation sector, um, you know, in a bid to say, you know, we are able to do this. Um, and, and the, paternalistic tone with which I, I've heard some, um, African, uh, leaders speak about their citizens, um, you know, not least mine. 
I see lots of resonance between, you know, this top-down philosophy that seems to govern African governance and, say, the Chinese model. Um, whereas when many of us, again, people like myself, most of the media we consume is primarily uh, Western. Most of the, the, the things we aspire to, uh, most of the products we use, um, I, there's an interesting tension there that I sense um, that I'm still trying to work through in my head. I recall when President Museveni in, in, in Uganda decided to switch off the internet, claiming he was doing it to keep his country safe and to maintain sort of uh, the national interests of of his citizens. And then following that, he 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 later started, you know, to tax uh, Ugandans for, for the use of social media. And it occurred to me there that th- there's a there's a sort of pragmatic decision being made on the basis of some of the things that you're saying here that, you know, I can't control what Facebook, Twitter, WeChat, WhatsApp are doing in my country. There's clear like commercial, you know, value being created here. It's certainly not benefiting my, you know, the citizens of say Uganda in the way I'd like to see it do. And, you know, I I also see contracts being signed with, you know, the Pentagon and in the admission that Twitter is making, of course, this, this, this admission wasn't made then, but I'm just, you know, I'm mashing things up now. And the admission Twitter's recently made or their decision to not let political parties buy influence on their platform. The admission is basically, yes, our, our platforms can and will be used by the most powerful people in ways that serve them. And so in that context, can you blame a, a leader like Museveni for, for going, well, I want in on this action um, and I, I want my citizens to benefit. And uh, I'm, I'm really playing devil's advocate here. But uh, what do you make of, of that reasoning? Also, Ruman? I think you're being much, much too charitable to Museveni. Um, <laughs> it, it's, my, it's my impression that the social media tax was uh, primarily aimed at capturing value from the system and not rooted in any, any uh, robust framework. Uh, but, but more broadly, to speak to something that Eugenio mentioned, I think decentralization optimizes for value creation um, and centralization is great for capturing it. So, you know, in the uh, quote-unquote open web where there were not as many, there was not as much centralization, um, you know, we saw that there was lots of value being created, but to create any commercial entities or to extract any commercial value so that that creation is sustainable, centralization needs to happen. So Google needs to exist, Facebook needs to exist, um, all the different app stores need to exist, um, all the different spaces where people then congregate, make it easy for value to get extracted from the system. You know, if we go back to the open web that Eugenio was describing, um, there was lots of value being created at the time. Um, it felt very uh, I- idealistic or very idyllic. Um, but for us, for anybody to extract commercial value um, to keep the system running um, and, you know, to profit for their, uh, for the time they've invested, uh, we need the Googles of this world to exist. We need the Facebooks. We need the different app stores that centralize or that as a choke point uh, through which value can be extracted. Uh, and so Museveni, so I, I believe, saw a similar choke point um, being, again, that, that, that he's the president um, of Uganda and decided to extract value without the contribution that needs to come with that. Um, so so I, don't, I don't think this was rooted in any... Um, yeah, I don't think this was a resistance in any way that would be admirable. Um, I think it was value destructive um, and it was actively hurtful to the consumer. If you wanted to have a conversation about to say bring in the Facebooks and Googles of this world to the table, then that's a conversation you should have with them and not impose a tax on the consumers who haven't done anything. Well, to be fair to him, um, Mark Zuckerberg has clearly said he's not going to be flying around the world meeting with, with governments that, that beckon him to, 
to to answer to to what his company is or isn't doing there. Um, but I I chose Museveni in, intentionally because I realized just how polarizing he is as a leader and and. And I have to admit, there are worrying aspects of his leadership style and a lot of what's clearly at this point signs that perhaps, you know, something new might be uh, not such a bad idea for Uganda, right? But but I suppose it, it plays into the point that Eugenio was making, that there are no good guys. I think that's the oversimplification, that there's a self-interested play within this techno-political space, which is uh, a word I'm, I'm borrowing straight from your book, Eugenio, but there's there's, there's definitely a self-interestedness to the way everyone from governments to, 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 to large enterprise, even to how citizenry, given how more involved we, we are than ever before in, in sort of shaping the internet, there's definitely a self-interest in, in how all of us are going about doing what we do. And also, I mean, you have to say, you, you have to admit whether he realized he was being forward thinking or not, Museveni preempted Europe's decision to start contemplating taxing Facebook and other social media platforms in their countries. Uh, and I suppose whether he, he designed it or not, it, it is setting us up for this debate about beneficiation, where it occurs and who ultimately benefits and, and where, where it all goes once, you know, once value has been captured. I, I think we, we are all uh, trying to stress this, uh, a very similar point. I think the, ass the assertiveness is really important. The fact that uh, Museveni was the one who asserted it, that that's a problem. And uh, it would be great to see a bit more assertiveness coming from a civil society organization and who had very, very vocal uh, in the 19th and, uh, and north. And, uh, and now they seem to have kept a little bit quiet. Or if they're not quiet, they are deciding to side with one party or, or another. And uh, I think there is a very interesting conversation that can happen there of like what is legitimate or not and like, how value can be created uh, and uh, through decentralization. And it's not shutting down Facebook. It's not shutting down Google. Uh, these big players are there to stay at least for a, for a while. Uh, and uh, but uh, something new can be created. And uh, you know, is the it? Barnes is it? We are trying to do that. Uh, but uh, is it a matter of pulling an Edward Snowden though? I wonder because um, if we're talking, you know, which side are you on? He'll argue that he's on the side of humanity and this great imaginary uh, that he sort of bought into as a youth and and one that he's. I suppose mourning the loss of and but not entirely giving up on and to some extent I hear some of the some of those themes in your personal rhetoric and so maybe as a way of segueing into the discussion around the imaginary of internet security or data privacy uh within the context of security and I suppose national interests on a scale of 1 to 10 if 10 is Snowden like what are you Eugenio and uh, Osaruman <laughs> what are you well, you set me up with a very difficult one. You know, I'm, I don't think, uh, you know, if my ideas are moderately radical, I don't think that anybody's going to come and lock me up. And, uh, well, check I your windows now. There could be a possible mission on its way. <laughs> and so no, forth. Kidding, I will I'm let kidding. you guys, uh, I will let you guys decide what, how radical it is. But I'm also fully aware that uh, the Snowden and, um, uh, and alike, uh, they are, uh, are people that I, I very much admire, but at the same time, what they're trying to do, it's can be captured very easily. So uh, my book is called China, Africa and the Future of the Internet. It's a book about the, let's call it the geopolitics of the internet, but I'm fully aware that the, talking about the internet in geopolitical terms uh, is a problem. 
because uh, even if I don't take sides, I recognize that side exists. So let's take the example of Snowden. You know, Snowden, I was, I flew to China like a few weeks after the Snowden revelation. And the Chinese, I'm talking about academics, I'm not talking, I didn't meet any politicians at the time, were so excited because it was like, finally, you see, you know, we told you guys, we are not that bad. Uh, and uh, the hypocrisy coming from the United States, it's finally visible to everyone. And Snowden was so easily appropriated by China just to point finger again. And where is Snowden now? Is in Russia. And uh, we can do similar, when it comes to WikiLeaks, we can make similar uh, similar argument. WikiLeaks is this very powerful, but very plain points, like whatever is in the public interest. So it was criticized a lot, like putting, putting uh, lives in danger because uh, names of spies were revealed and these people could, uh, could lose their life because of that. And we have also seen during the 2016 election in the United States, how some of the, um, Evidence on Hillary Clinton that was made available by uh, by WikiLeaks uh, and uh, was used to support uh, uh, the election of uh, of Donald Trump. So that kind of simplistic, like we should tell the truth, uh, come through, and people will just make use of it. Uh, I do understand it is it's it's too basic, and uh, we have to rebuild. You, you talked about the third word of the internet, we have to bear that kind of like, uh, I go back to like the non-alignment movement, uh, you know, a non-aligned space uh, where some people commit to certain values uh, and build on these values uh, without uh, being uh, either with, uh, uh, with uh, in these cases, not Russia, it's going to be China or the United States. Uh, you know, it would be nice to have some uh, uh, some Julius Nyerere and Kwame Krum around. Uh, unfortunately, it's difficult to, to to find leaders of that value to, today, but, uh, but that could be very powerful, I think. Yeah, I think there's also a, a tendency to, to hero worship within the space. And mm -hmm. I think it actually, in the greater scheme of things, serves to damage some of the values that we'd like to see espoused, you know? So this idea that, you know, Edith Swan and Good, um, who's the WikiLeaks guy again, by the way? Julian Assange. Yeah, less than fully integrous, I think it's fair to say. I can't, I don't want to make a judgment call in any direction, but I'd sooner stand behind Edward Snowden as a human being than I would Assange, given the little I know about them. And and maybe that's also part of the problem, our willingness or desire to, to put people on a pedestal to be representative yeah. of a movement that should be really all about us. Uh, and, and so anyway, that aside, you didn't pick a number, so I'm picking one for you. I'm giving you a good solid seven uh, wow. on that uh, on the Edward Snowden scale. May, maybe let's call it six. Let's call it six because, um, you, you, like you point out, uh, yeah, you, the seven, not, I, 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 radical. If you say seven, I, I will start seeing, hearing some knocking at the door. Uh, you'll maybe, start, maybe. <laughs> you'll start to get visitors. So, yeah, so maybe, I, would, I wouldn't want to do that to you. Let's agree on six. So I can yes, keep writing books. Yes, also just because you're sufficiently pragmatic, but um, I think you stop short of being radical, which I don't know that has ever been a good thing necessarily for its own sake. And so let's call you a good solid six. Also, Ruman, what are you? I agree with lots of what Eugenio has said. Uh, so I think I'm a six as well. Um, okay. I, I, th I th tend to think about this in terms of trade-offs. Um, yeah. uh, one question that was crossing my mind just now is, like, to what extent should a state... Um, or should we relinquish privacy to a state for the sake of security? Um, and, and today, do we, when I juxtapose this worldview against some of the ways we talk about privacy um, or security, um, there's a bit of dissonance there. This is often the context China or the Africa-China relationship or the China-Africa relationship is referenced. Um, exactly. Even on the continent. 
they're just here to keep us safe or to help us defend ourselves in this wild, wild west that is the fourth industrial revolution. Or they're here to compromise your security and pillage the, 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 the data integrity of your continent, you know, work with us, you know, and, and they can go any way. And, and often at the center of that debate is the idea of data privacy. Our apparent failure to, to grasp just how important and valuable our data is as Africans and what it is about it that's worth keeping secure. So, Eugenio, how does security, data privacy, how have these themes been woven um, into your book? And, and perhaps what have you, what has your experience been as you've, if you've been doing your research? Going through the voices of the people I'd, I'd interviewed, uh, and uh, there is very much of a disconnect. So there is a tendency of uh, those in power to over, um, um, not overestimate, but overclaim uh, the importance of security. And the other sense, the ordinary people of people working on the tech sides being very concerned and, uh, and saying, uh, well, uh, I don't think uh, these kind of laws that are being passed uh, are justified by the real risk uh, that... Is, you know, uh, can, I, can I interrupt you and press you to, to give me an example of how, of what arguments are often made? What are the issues that, that play into that argument? Well, what are we trying to keep secure? There. You know, if, if, you go, if you go to Ethiopia, the very basic one is like, uh, we need to, to maintain our stability. And uh, Ethiopia has been growing double digits for like 10 years. Uh, we can't allow uh, insecurity and destabilization to get into our way. So if there are dissenting voices, these dissenting voices are exaggerated in many cases. Uh, well, maybe not this prime minister, but the previous one, we're just flagging them as terrorists. So they were flagging like bloggers saying like, we should do something a bit different. Uh, as people terror, uh, that were acting as terrorists. And it was this rhetoric, again, they were disconnected by saying, well, you're agents of the West. So there was a kind of these paradoxical arguments. I don't know how they kept it together, but uh, that was very much what they were pushing for. And on the other sense, uh, there is this idea that, uh, well, if we need to grow from a, uh, our own information society, we are vulnerable, and so we have to protect from like cyber attacks and the like. You know, we have seen like the United States and being like the prey of uh, some very simplistic narratives. We are not talking like stealing your credit card, but like uh, building on people's credulity. And uh, there was a fascinating piece of research coming out from, uh, um, from uh, uh, Macedonia looking like how some teenagers were sort of like uh, using social media to, to sway elections in ways that like uh, I was so surprising. How the hell did these people know about uh, the politics of the United States? So there is so many vulnerabilities out there. And how can you block them? I think there is really no need to just press the security issue so, so hard. When it comes to privacy, I think it's a little bit different. And there is a movement that it's coming and it's, it's getting some strength, probably not enough, and saying, I produce data by my everyday interaction. The data I produce are very valuable to the companies owning the platform on which I'm writing. I own that data. And I want to have control of it. The problem is, uh, you know, I'm teaching uh, undergrad and postgrad here at WITS, uh, and we talk about this stuff all the time. A lot of these young minds uh, see these as just too complicated. You know, why have to worry about it? Who am I? You know, why are they going to come after me? I'm, a, I'm an ordinary folk. Uh, so it's okay at the end of the day. It's just too much work. There's extreme views, again, that view the open internet ideal as this moral imperative and mm -hmm. that anything bad that occurs as a result should be a tax that society is able and willing to 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 absorb 
the argument when it comes to privacy and the argument that was very much spinned by the Google, I remember this argument made very powerfully by Eric Schmidt, the, the, the former CEO. It was like, you know, if you have nothing to hide, uh, you know, what do you worry about it? Uh, but Cambridge Analytica has changed all that. Now, now we know that the way in which Cambridge Analytica worked uh, was not just targeting everyone when it comes to the Brexit referendum, when it comes to like uh, uh, the US election, because of the data they had available, because of my ordinary or users ordinary being themselves on the internet, uh, they targeted those that they thought were undecided. So if I was a very radical leftist or a very like radical uh, right wing, whatever, and uh, I was likely not to be their target or to receive a lot of political out or whatever. But if I was in the middle, if I had clicked like one day to Barack Obama, the next day to Hillary Clinton, and then maybe a kind of like uh, uh, not too radical Republican, that uh, made me a target. And at that point, uh, I was bombarded by all sort of like information mixing false news or something relatively critical, something like probably truthful. Uh, and this gives a completely different understanding of privacy. So it's not like if I do something wrong, I become a target. If I just myself on the internet, who I am gets sold to someone who is going to manipulate that with results very big in the political domain. So this is a completely different idea of privacy. And to tie it to Africa and to the continent, one of the things, it was this fantastic, if you haven't watched it, uh, um, documentary now on Netflix, uh, it was is The Great Hack. Uh, now the thing that we know is that uh, the way in which these techniques were trialed uh, were trialed first and foremost at the, at the very beginning kind of conflict areas uh, and then in elections uh, in places like Nigeria and Kenya and many other beyond the continent. Uh, so the kind of like mischievous abilities and skills uh, that were used later on and became very public in the United States and the UK were first trialed on African citizen and Vietnamese citizen and Trinidad and Tobago citizen. So in what some people call the peripheries. Uh, and then once those were learned, they were hitting hard at the core of politics. Uh, and this is really scary. In your book, you mentioned that part of Huawei's success, uh, linking to your point about the periphery now, um, you mentioned that part of Huawei's success in China depended on its ability to um, tap into unexploited and peripheral markets uh, and grow progressively stronger from there. Uh, uh, and I have, I have two questions. One of them is, you know, obviously today we can, we might think about the African continent as one of said peripheral markets. How does this actually happen? Uh, I've heard the sentiments that China comes into African countries to execute projects which on the surface are good for development, but they primarily use um, Chinese companies. They don't engage in any meaningful knowledge transfer. Basically, again, like setting up beachheads in, in different countries or outposts in, in different countries without actually leaving too much of a positive impact beyond the infrastructure project itself. So, Like one of those sci-fi movies where like an alien <laughs> race come and, and, and siphon, siphon, you know, the resources of, of another planet, that kind of thing. Exactly. So, so, so my first question is, um, what do you think about, or what do you make of that? Uh, or do you think that's an accurate way to describe the relationship? And the second is, given that this is exactly how Huawei played in China, and Huawei uh, is, has been a key player across Africa, to what extent do you see uh, Chinese companies as conduits or tools for the Chinese government or, or representatives, if you may? No, this is a very interesting moment for Huawei and uh, and the like. I, well, 
I will try to answer in this way. In the, I wanted to write this book in three years and it took me 10 years to write. So this is like goods and bads and that. And the good thing is that I could see that, uh, that relationship evolve over time. And it was incredibly interesting. So uh, let me get back to Ethiopia, which is the country where, where I did most of my work uh, and uh, in, uh, in this regard. So I remember when I first met uh, with relatively young uh, engineers working on uh, for at the time it was uh, the Ethiopian Telecommunication Corporation, then it became Media Telecom. So these young guys were quite forthcoming, uh, and uh, we had multiple chats and we're saying, you know what, we, we are worried. We are worried because we don't have the password uh, of the server that are used to run our own country. And uh, all the kind of technical knowledge, uh, at that time was ZTE, uh, Huawei came later into the picture, uh, is written in Chinese and we don't speak Chinese. So the first answer, <laughs> let's date it uh, up to 2010, uh, was yes, it's true. You know, China's coming with turnkey project. They don't want to uh, transfer knowledge and so forth. But I want to make this point again uh, about assertiveness. The moment in which some of the uh, critical minds within uh, within uh, um, Ethio Telecom realized that that was a problem, you know, the relationship changed. And uh, first of all, the password were given away, and uh, things changed in ways that uh, more control was uh, was shifted back uh, into the hands of uh, Ethiopian uh, engineers and so forth. And Huawei has been relatively responsive to this, so things have been changing, and this is an evolving space. So when yeah, it comes okay. to like uh, um, China, um, uh, Chinese company and the relationship with the Chinese government, this is a very complex, uh, complex space. So on the one end, we have companies like ZTE. It's clearly a company where the state has a big stake. So in that case, it's quite the answer is quite straightforward. In the case of Huawei, things are much more complicated. And the fact that the founder used to be working uh, uh, was to be a, a military person and working for the uh, for the army is one of the things that is used very often. Uh, to, to strengthen uh, the, the point that there is a relationship. At the same time, Huawei has been able to provide uh, services on a purely commercial basis and just winning bids that other couldn't stand a chance to win. Again, the relationship, uh, it's complicated because Huawei, as well as others, do have access to a set of preferential loans that are coming from the Chinese Exim Bank, that is the bank that is being used for for development project. Uh, so clearly there is a ties there. But uh, but again, when it comes to like, how the data running through a Huawei built network uh, going to go straight into the uh, service of the Chinese government, uh, well, to be honest, we don't have that much evidence on that. Actually, I'm going back to Edward Snowden. Because of what we now know, thanks to him, there were a couple of cases where the NSA had been installing backdoors in Huawei's routers, as well as routers produced by others. So at that point, one of my colleagues, I guess it was a King's College London, said, well, right now there is more available evidence that the American government used Huawei to spy on African citizens than the Chinese government did. I wow, want to stress publicly available evidence. So maybe it's happening. Maybe, but we just don't know. But the evidence that the government, the American government use it, that was there for people to, to, to look and assess by themselves. Wow, the fascinating stuff. Also, Ruben, it just occurred to me as you asked the question about uh, the perception about China sort of playing an, extract, an extraction role on the continent. I wonder how they think of us collectively as the African continent and our interest in them. I wonder if this conversation were happening between 
two Chinese people and an area expert like Eugenio, how they would frame what they perceive Africa's interest is in China and to what extent it is a mutually beneficial proposition. Seeing as I am not Chinese. Uh, <laughs> last, last we checked. Uh, <laughs> last, last I checked. Um, but, but, but my impression is that uh, China seems to view the African continent in two ways as a way to, uh, and this you know, resonates with some things that Eugenia wrote in his book, um, that China might view Africa as um, a source of natural resources or raw materials and also, um, again, extensions of its market. So basically virgin markets where they can push products to test them, um, or to, or to sell them, frankly, um, you know, for their, for economic benefit. Uh, at the same time, you know, there's a bit of nuance here because I know that, um, a lot, lots of traders from Eastern Nigeria, they, they spend lots of time in China trading with China. Um, I've seen very anecdotal evidence of, you know, many Chinese people or, or, or Chinese traders um, learning how to speak Igbo in Nigerian language to, to communicate with Nigerians. And so while at the state level, um, I get this, I get the sense that this uh, might be extractive on the individual level. Uh, it seems to me like there's more, much more of uh, a mutual respect. How much of this is a like finding like, Eugenio? I mean, when you think of a company like Econet and the, the fact that it's, you know, crazy success is owed in great part to, you know, what has to be compromises struck with the Zimbabwean government. Or when you think about South Africa's Naspers, uh, Naspers being Africa's biggest, you know, tech company and its direct link to dodgy beneficiation thanks to the apartheid government, uh, which of course led to a, a, a much brighter and more productive future post-apartheid. You know, post uh, when you think of, you know, some of the examples you've made in Ethiopia or, you know, you can pretty much name all the biggest enterprise plays, home, homegrown enterprise plays on the African continent. And there's a very, very strong correlation between their success often and the relationship they have with, you know, the governments that, you know, basically regulate them. That sounds like China to me. So to what extent is China's success a situation of like working with like or finding more in common with like relative to say the global north and to what extent is it maybe an approach thing where my you know my perception is that china seems willing to come here and figure things out and learn relative to to other players um from other parts of the world well i have to say that china manages its own history just just going back just to china for it for a minute uh, to strike a very interesting and very complex balance between uh, state support uh, and just letting things happen. So uh, if you go back to the history of uh, telecommunication and big companies in China, there was a period where Huawei was a very, very tiny company that didn't have a lot of support from the Chinese government at all. And as it happens often in tech, uh, people will get a lot of funding from the state, not necessarily those who are going to succeed. And uh, so going back, we're talking about 1990s when China was starting to try uh, to liberalize. Uh, there were companies that were so closely tied uh, to ministries. In that case, it was a kind of a competition across ministries. Uh, and it didn't work out. And Huawei sort of emerged uh, as the victor in this very, very tight race. 
the moment that happened, the moment Huawei and ZTE to, to a lesser extent uh, became the two very big uh, global players, other companies decided just to be had enough of the Chinese market, which is like one for point billion people. So you have a lot of people to serve there. You don't necessarily have to go out. Uh, and at that point, uh, they very much bet on it. So this answer, uh, I can give you two different answers based on which period in history we're looking at. And in that case, uh, you know, once while we emerge as the victor, well, the, the government decided these is, these are the guys we're going to invest into. And when it comes to trial and error in Africa, this is very interesting as well, because uh, it seems that, uh, and, and that was very much a perception of some of the African tech guys that I, that I spoke with. Uh, it was, uh, well, China is coming here with a lot of money and resources, and this is great, uh, but there is so much that is just like, uh, you know, they're going to try it. It's not going to work. They're going to fix it the next day. And then, uh, you know, they're experimenting. You know, I, I'm going to use the word of one of the people I spoke with. They're experimenting on us. Uh, but then the other, uh, the other version of these, like, uh, they're learning over time. So we are ex being experimented on. That was the feeling. Uh, but at the same time, things are eventually gonna gonna get right uh, and in some cases it didn't work uh, uh, in in ethiopia now things are changing but in the lack in the absence of monopoly you have to make a phone call in ethiopia now things are a bit better but for a while it was such a nightmare you just had to laugh you know you call your friend one day the network doesn't work that's what you hear by a voice that is kind of like uh, english chinese uh, and the next time you just dial the wrong number which is not true because uh, that's the same number over and over again and the next day is just you know what the cell just fell fell to the ground so but that's the sense. That's the sense that like there have been a sort of commitment. Uh, they are experimenting, but they're here to stay. And uh, there are pros and cons. Anecdotally, one can point to Transient, a company that came here as really nothing to, you know, to write home about, but sort of just dug their heels in and is now easily the the biggest Africa-focused IPO success in China. I mean, so many oversimplifications in that in that very statement alone. However, um, quite interesting to see that that isn't often the case for similar attempts to capture value on the African continent, uh, whether they're backed by Europe or America, or at least when success does happen, it doesn't quite come in the same way. So it'll be something quite interesting to track. Again, this is not an exhaustive conversation we can have in a single show. This is definitely what we see as the start of starting to understand or creating a framework for understanding, you know, some of the nuances at play within this context. And perhaps to, to wind things down, I, I want to ask to what extent you perceive, um, African nations as, as seeking to copy the quote unquote success, because I mean, depending on how you look at it, I mean, it's hard to argue it's not a success. The success of China's censorship of the internet, this ability of China to sort of do this double whammy of protecting its sovereignty and, and also sort of catalyzing technological innovation and limiting foreign interference, but also making an impact on global business. And it all seems linked to this decision to, to make things as close as possible. And, and I suppose to what extent is that a model you've observed, even in places like Kenya and Ghana, which you've, by, by your definition, are, are more democratic or, or less, less closed? There must be the, some of those ideas that even places like that think, hey, we should, we should borrow this or that. 
Well, what, what you will get is very different if people are uh, on the record or off the record. So if you are on the record, uh, you know, China is seen uh, that, the, as you said, it's, it's very much not a success when it comes to like the, the popular understanding. Uh, of course, it's a success when it comes to like, uh, you know, the boost of the economy and so forth. Uh, but the idea of like this very powerful sensor space, uh, it just doesn't fly with, uh, I think, the vast majority of uh, of human beings. We just don't like that. And uh, but then when you go off the records, the things are very different. I remember this case. Uh, I was speaking in Ethiopia with one of the, let's say, um, ideologue of uh, the Ethiopian government at the time. His name was Seba Nega, and uh, it was very interesting uh, that. Uh, his conversation, it seems that all what I, all I do in my life is going on WikiLeaks. Uh, and, uh, but because of it, we down knew that uh, there was a conversation between him and the American ambassador at the time, was Donald Yamamoto. And it was really interesting to hear Sebat Nega to uh, tell to the American uh, ambassador, well, the Chinese model is what we need in this country. So just straight into the face. And, uh, and that's what we would like to follow. And it was interesting when I met Sebat, he, he was an old man at the time. And, uh, and, uh, and I told him that this conversation was in the public domain. And he had no idea. I don't think he spent a lot of time on WikiLeaks. Uh, but then when he spoke with me, he doubled it down and he said, well, you know what? We really would like to follow the Chinese example, but it's just too complex. We will never master it. But definitely we want to learn something from it. Wow. So you have wow. this kind of disconnect between what is being said and what is being done. And I think I would encourage other scholars to, to, to look into this, uh, uh, into this gap, because I think that's where we will understand what the future of information societies in many African countries, but even globally, is going to be like. We're going to need to have you back on the show to discuss this, this interplay that you've even started to allude to between promoting sovereignty, promoting securitization, uh, this notion of a free but securitized internet. Uh, yeah, it's just a fascinating thing. And to what extent it's already happening here on the on the African continent and or something we might desire in part rhetorically or otherwise. I think that's just such a fascinating conversation that we must have on another day. I thought it might be fun to just give you guys, you know, throw stuff out there and get your sort of reflex responses, hot takes welcome to certain things that are have been trending and perhaps that we will <laughs> Uh, we will explore in greater detail uh, later on when we get the chance. Uh, Jack Ma is set to leave Alibaba. Good or bad for the Africa? Also, Ruman? Neutral. Neutral. I didn't give that as an option, but uh, I'll, I'll <laughs> let that go. I'll let that go. Good or good. bad for the for the Africa, um, Eugenio? Jack Ma I, about to leave Alibaba. I think it's good. Okay. China, uh, or at least Chinese interests, uh, circling Celsi, the beleaguered mobile telco in South Africa. Buying that asset would make them one of the top four, uh, one of the top three uh, mobile telcos in South Africa. Would that be good or bad for South Africa or broadly for for Africa? What do you think, Eugenio? Can I say good and elaborate on that? Okay, very briefly. Go ahead. <laughs> right. So, because ZTE already has a, uh, has had a role in in Cel in Celsi, and as many uh, other Chinese companies did for they work for the Safaricon and for the Vodacom and so forth, but they never put their face uh, 
into the market. So we know that some of the infrastructure is, is built by these countries, uh, but they never got out there with their own brand names and saying, now we're going to provide services. So it would be fascinating to see how a Chinese company actually does into that space and be able to criticize for what doesn't work or appreciate what does work. Uh, but that would be a first. And I would be very interested in see what happens. I don't know whether we should read into Vodacom hinting at the fact that mobile devices on their network will start to be locked, possibly going <laughs> forward. Um, perhaps they're preempting a more China-led <laughs> mobile telco environment in South Africa. Who knows? Uh, Maybe. It all remains to be seen. So, but let's, uh, let's move on to Transient's IPO I referenced earlier. Transient's IPO in China, good or bad for us on the continent? Oh, de definitely positive. Awesome. What do you reckon, Eugenio? Well, moderately positive. Mm -hmm. Do I have a minute? Okay. Because yes. <laughs> as you said earlier, and we discussed in very different shades, it's, uh, it's, it's fantastic that companies like Technos and Transient are, are making values, are allowing people to, 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 uh, to afford a phone and be out there. But uh, we probably heard of, uh, of the like of like uh, African-based uh, mobile companies like Mara that was started first in Rwanda and it's setting up shop in South Africa as well. So... Again, we had uh, examples of uh, uh, strongly backed by governments. Uh, Paul Kagame was very instrumental in Mara, uh, not succeeding. It was that the first, probably the most famous one was like the European Union trying to to develop a, a search engine that was better than Google. They poured billion of uh, of euros into that. Nobody ever. I don't even remember the name the name of it. So that doesn't <laughs> mean that we have to 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 as uh, you guys said and we we agree. You know, there has to be a commercial. Uh, in uh reason why we buy a phone it can't be just be like we buy it because it's uh, an african phone but uh, i don't know that space can be growth and uh, with techno there uh, mara i think is going to struggle interesting points you raised there um moving on over 60,000 african students being invited to study in china on their dime surely that can't be a bad thing what do you think osiruman yes or no good for africa uh, africa I, I think it's good Okay. Eugenio? Straight good. Straight good. All right. Well, what about finally, um, what seems to be China's warming to the idea of Bitcoin? Good or bad for Africa? Hmm. Hmm. Can we leave it in? Hmm? Well, you <laughs> might leave it at hmm, but uh, can I just spice this up by saying it is quite telling that um, uh, China has been for many, many years now, and you'll probably know this, Eugenio, backing the notion of moving the world over from its its dependence on the US dollar um, to something perhaps a little more stable and less beleaguered by debt. <laughs> so, um, yeah, in, the con in that context, I wonder what the str strategy might be in, in suggesting that perhaps Bitcoin could be as good as its proponents suggest, coming from right at the top, mind you. And yeah, implications for Africa? Should we buy into this rhetoric? Yes or no? I'm going to force a hard yes or no from both of you. Uh, depends. <laughs> we need another show. Oh, we need another show. Okay, yeah. we'll leave it at that. I'll, I'll let you guys off the hook. And to be fair, you guys are both showing your class because as we say here, oversimplification is the enemy. I'm forcing you guys into hot take pockets, which we don't typically do here on the show. But I think it's, it's fantastic for teasing what should come later and again i need to emphasize folks 
we're not trying to exhaustively um, establish the state of play between the continent and China. Impossible to do on a single show. But I think what we have done successfully, no small thanks to you, Eugene, you're being on the show, is to, you know, lay the groundwork, you know, set the table for what needs to come next, or indeed what we should discuss next. And so from that standpoint, we look forward to hearing back from you. What do you make of all the things we've raised? I mean, so much to dive into. We'll be sharing a, a ton of the resources we discussed in the show notes. Look out for that. If you want to do some more reading on your own, we'll certainly share links to Eugenio's new book. But yeah, please let us know what you make of this budding, I'd like to think, budding Africa-China relationship that is now leveraging very heavily happenings within the tech and innovation space. Please give us a shout on Instagram and Twitter at African Roundup or uh, drop us an email via our address, hello at africantechroundup.com or simply follow us on Facebook. Yes, we're there too, folks. Facebook.com forward slash African Tech Roundup. We'd love to hear from you. Love to hear what you think. Eugenio, where can people find your book though? How, how do people get in, uh, you know, get well, on board the Eugenio train? The, the easiest ways to get it is uh, is the either the EPUB or, or the Kindle version. And uh, if we want to bypass the big tech companies like Amazon, if you want to go straight to uh, Z Publisher, I'm not saying I wouldn't say it for any publisher, but this is Z is a very interesting example. It's just a collective. They do not CEO. There is no boss. Uh, they're all at the same level. They publish very interesting stuff. Uh, so I would say, you know, if you want to give less money to Amazon and more to them, I think they deserve it. I hear Edward Snowden is their CEO. <laughs> <laughs> In the back somewhere. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, that's really, folks, I'm really joking. I'm, I'm glad you shot them out. Uh, support independent publishing. Um, cop his book will definitely show, you know, be links uh, in the show notes. And of course, support the subtext always. Incredible long form essays. If you haven't had enough of Osaruman on this show or really anywhere else you're lucky enough to hear him speak you can definitely enjoy him in much greater length uh, because he does a lot of his best writing for the subtext check it out the subtext.io and of course anything else you want to catch up on uh, on the africantechroundup.com we can't wait for you to get stuck in if you're just joining us for the first time or even if you've been here a while I'll bet you there's stuff you haven't heard so head over there for all the best stuff otherwise I have to thank you both I'm going to start with you Osaruman it's always a pleasure to have you on the show my guy it's a pleasure, man. Thank you very yeah, much. Yeah, you called it. You was like, uh, it can't happen once. I, well, at least you said you hope <laughs> it doesn't happen once. We made sure it didn't happen once. Uh, perhaps we might keep this going. Who knows? Uh, I'm Who certainly knows? hopeful. Thank you so much. Eugenio Garladane. Did I say that uh, at least half decent? It was Gagliardone. I think you said it better at the beginning, but it's okay. Oh, I, I used, I used to my, my students saying, you know, I, I know it's a complicated long, long surname. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I suppose I'm just getting back at you for all the times my name's butchered, but uh, no, I, shouldn't, <laughs> I shouldn't do that at all. Thank you so much for being on the show, Eugenio Garradone. Um, I certainly hope your, cool. your book travels as far as it. I can't wait to, to get all the way through to the end of it. And I'm putting you on the spot by saying we will be hollering at you to have you back on the show. Uh, we plan to, to do a lot more of these uh, sort of Africa-China uh, deep dives, and you're definitely one to tap uh, when we do a uh, future one. So I hope you don't mind us getting in touch then. It was a fantastic pleasure. Really happy to be on the show. And uh, whenever you guys feel uh, it's a good time. Fantastic. Well, guys, that's it. Thank you for listening to us as you've been rocking your baby to sleep, uh, making your way through traffic, washing them dishes, whatever you've been doing, listening to this podcast. Uh, thank you for prioritizing this appointment and giving us an opportunity to share what's on our minds. And our village inspires us. And uh, please keep it real by joining us again when we drop again. But for now, my name is Andy Lemasugu. Take it easy, Africa. <laughs>